I want to have you turn this morning to the book of uh, Hebrews, chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I just want to um, welcome my nephew, Seth, who's here. I haven't seen him in quite a while, and he's living in Taiwan with his wonderful wife and his beautiful boy, uh, Henry, who's three years old. And um, it's just a delight to have you, Seth, and um, a real privilege to have him stay with us for a short time. Um, so we're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and last week you'll recall that we talked about heaven, which was the beginning of a series on heaven, uh, and I entitled it Our Misconceptions, and we talked about some of the problems that we have with heaven. And the biggest problem that we have is that we don't see it as tangible. We see it as immaterial and kind of up there somewhere, uh, somewhat nondescript. We really can't even tell anybody what heaven is really like. We just know that we're going to be singing and there are going to be crowns and there's going to be falling down and worship. But beyond that, most of us have a very vague view of really what heaven is like. And so we talked about the source of our misconceptions and tried to correct a number of those last week. And this morning what I want to talk about is the location of heaven, our eternal home. And I want to begin by reading the book of Hebrews, beginning in chapter 11, and we're going to read the first 16 verses. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when he was warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The early church suffered greatly. The early church lost their homes as a result of their faith in Christ. 
They lost their families. They lost their source of income and they lost their lives and they considered it a small thing in light of the glory that was to be revealed to them. They were looking forward to a better home. They were looking forward to a city and a country, a place, a physical, tangible place called heaven. And it helped them to withstand the enormous pressure. And last week we talked about part of the reason why I believe that North American Christians don't know much about heaven and why we don't meditate on it very much and why it's not that important to us is because we are so comfortable here. We're so comfortable here that we're thinking, well, you know, I, I'm not in a rush to get out of here. This isn't bad. This is wonderful. Great memories. I want to see the grandkids and the great-grandkids. And, and we, we have this perspective because we suffer so little as Christians. And it's one of the downsides of living in a, in a very free country, in a very free time. But the New Testament church didn't have that prerogative. They suffered greatly, and as a result, they were looking forward to the final destination for the believer, which was heaven. That's why Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples in the upper room discourse, uh, just shortly before he was betrayed and crucified on the cross, in John 14, one said this, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. And I have to believe that those words over the next decades as those disciples preach the gospel and spread the word of salvation and redemption, and as they suffered, look back on those words with fondness, and they anticipated with great joy the kingdom to come. That's why Paul in his, in his epistles in Colossians and Ephesians has this, this description of his own heart as being torn between two worlds. The only reason he wants to stay here is for the benefit of the body of Christ. That's what he says. It's, it's a selfless sacrifice of, on his part. He says, I want to stay only because more work needs to be done. But his heart is in the kingdom of God. That's where he really wants to be. And he says, I'm torn between these two priorities of my life the need and my personal desire to be set free in the kingdom of God. In the weeks ahead, uh, as we go through this series, we're gonna be talking about many things related to heaven. We're gonna be talking about what your physical body will be like, who will be there, what our living conditions will be like. We'll be talking about our relationship with God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. We're gonna be talking about the activities and the reigning and ruling with Christ and what that really means. But for today, we're gonna talk about something very basic and narrow in scope, and simply, it's the location of heaven. Because you might be a bit surprised to discover that heaven isn't in a single place. Heaven moves around. And I know you're gonna think, this guy is an absolute heretic. What is he talking about? But I, I trust that by the time we're done with this message, you'll be inspired and encouraged and your eyes will be opened. There's nothing that I'm gonna share with you that you haven't heard before, but you may not have heard it quite put in these terms. And so what I'd like to begin uh, talking about today is the dimensions of heaven. And if you're following along in your notes, you can uh, participate and fill in the blanks if you like. But according to Jewish theology, there were actually three heavens, three levels of heaven. And Paul alludes to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, uh, when he talks about this vision that God gave him. And he was, he was elevated, he says, to the third heaven. Do you remember the text? 
And he said, a man 14 years ago, in the body or out of the body, I'm not sure, he says, but I was transported into the third heaven. And the Jewish uh, theologians, some, some of them actually believe there's seven heavens or seven levels of heavens, uh, but most theologians, uh, Jewish and otherwise, recognize at least three. And we're talking about physical dimensions of heaven. And so the first heaven is rakia in the Hebrew, and it means firmament or expanse. It's that pure, transparent envelope around the earth and its atmosphere. So it includes the clouds, the vapors, uh, the, the um, various chemicals that are, are in the air that make up the components of the air. It's uh, everything up until the, the beginning of the star system. So everything that's a part of our, of our envelope of atmosphere is what the Bible refers to as the first heaven. And the Hebrew word, again, all the words are translated in English as heaven, uh, but they're not so in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for that envelope is rakia. The second uh, level of heaven is the starry heaven, and that's shamayim, and it's the plural in Hebrew. It means heavens. And so that encompasses the solar systems, the stars, the planets, the moon, the sun. Everything outside of our atmosphere was considered in, in, uh, in Jewish theology as the second heaven. And then the third heaven uh, is called the dwelling place of God. And it is called Shamaim Hashayamam. And it means the heavens above the heavens or the highest heavens. And so this place was, was also what Paul referred to as the third heaven. It's that place of the dwelling of God, of the, of the four living creatures. And I, I can't wait to meet these guys. You know, I, I, I study them and, I, and I've read about them both in, in Ezekiel and the Old Testament prophets as well as in the book of Revelation. And I, I can't wait to meet these creatures that are so powerful and worship God. And then the 24 elders are there in, in the third heaven. We know that from the book of Revelation. And then the host of heaven is there. Uh, all the people, the, the saints that have died in the past are now in the presence of God. And we know from scripture that they're occupied. They're occupied with worship, but they're also occupied with intercession. And I'm gonna talk more about that in just a moment. But that's the third heaven that, that Paul describes in scripture. It's also known as paradise. Interestingly, in the Greek Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. But in the Greek Septuagint, uh, the word is paradisos, and it means a garden or a park or a beautiful paradise. And, uh, and it's, it's such a clear throwback to exactly what we had in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. It's this place of pleasure, this place of purity, this place of, of no sin and no sorrow and no sadness whatsoever. It's the place that Jesus promised the thief on the cross that he would go to be with Jesus on that day. He said, today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. It's also the place that Paul saw in his vision that we just mentioned a moment ago in, in um, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, because he said this, this place in the third heaven was also called the paradise of God. And then we have in Revelation chapter two, verse seven, we have Jesus speaking to the church and he says, to he who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we've got this third heaven that's called the paradise of God. And in Isaiah 57, 15, it's ca called the high and holy place. It's, that's where God dwells. But you want to hear something really beautiful? It also says in the very next verse that I also live with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Isn't that amazing? That the God that occupies the highest heavens also dwells with a man or woman who has a lowly, contrite heart. We're also told that this third heaven is described as God's throne. In the book of Acts chapter 7, 
We're told that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit on the, on the day of his uh, martyrdom, the day that he was stoned to death, God supernaturally opened this, this barrier that exists between our realm and the heavenly realm and allowed him to see the throne of God and allowed him to see Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God who was sitting on a throne. The book of Revelation tells us in, verse, in chapter 22 in the final chapter of the Bible that in that kingdom, the angel showed John, the apostle, the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb down the streets of the city of God. And so we have, in a physical sense, three dimensions to heaven. We've got our atmosphere and then the starry host, and then we've got the place where God resides. Now, I want to talk more specifically about the location of heaven because, again, as I started out, most of us... Uh, think of a singular place. We think of heaven as somewhere out there. The third heaven we're talking about is mostly what we think about as Christians when we think about heaven. It's the place where grandma and grandpa went when they died, if they were believers. It's a place where our friends who were believing in the Lord and who had trusted Christ, that's the place where we think of when we think that someone has gone to heaven. But the Bible indicates that, that heaven is not a static place. It actually moves at least three times in the scriptures, and I'm gonna talk about that and support that biblically with every point I make. But heaven is not static. The thing that is unique about heaven and that makes heaven heaven is not the location. It's the person who occupies the pr premier resident of heaven is what makes heaven heaven. Wherever God is, that's where heaven is. Now, Jesus spoke on this, and I'm not going to take a lot of time on this, but the, the term kingdom of heaven was a little confusing for the disciples because Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is among you. And they're thinking, what are you talking about? Because they were waiting for an earthly realm, and they couldn't get it. But God was saying that wherever the rule and reign of Christ exists, the kingdom of God is there. So in essence, what he was saying is that every man and woman who believes in Christ who he has absolute rule and sway over their life, the kingdom of God is there. So the kingdom of God is among us right now. This is, the, this is the kingdom of God, but it's not the final place that we will end up. The kingdom of God was an already an existent state in Jesus' day because of his presence there on earth. But it also is a future state in a completely different place. And so following the resurrection of Christ from the dead and Jesus being resurrected, from that time on, people are in this place called the third heaven, but it is not our final destination. And so I want to talk to you about three locations of heaven, uh, a, present, a past heaven, a present heaven, and a future heaven. The past heaven in scripture is found for us in Luke 16, 22, and 23. It's the description of Lazarus and the rich man. Some of you may remember the story. I'm not going to go through the story in detail except to say that two men died, Jesus said. Lazarus, who was a beggar, and a rich man who had all the comforts in life. And they both died, and they both went to a place called Sheol. Sheol. And it's, uh, and it's a place in the, in the lower parts and lower regions of the earth, we're told in other passages of Scripture. And so there's two compartments to this place, and uh, we're told that, that Lazarus was on one side, and, and the rich man was on the other side. Lazarus happened to occupy... Uh, what the Bible refers to as Abraham's bosom. And the rich man was occupy, uh, occupying a place called Gehenna. 
And so you have these two separate compartments that the Bible teaches are, uh, were subterranean location in a place called Sheol that all the dead went to. So all the dead died and they went to this place and they went to one side or the other. And so we have this text in the Bible. That's really the first location of this place of blessedness, this place of rest and peace. It wasn't a place of torment for those that were at Abraham's bosom. The whole idea, that terminology, by the way, is foreign to us, but uh, it was not foreign to the people of, of Greek ancestry or Hebrew ancestry because it meant that you were reclining as you were eating and fellowshipping and enjoy company and, and friendship, you were reclining on each other because they didn't have chairs, so they just lay down very Asian style and, and they'd lean on each other. And that's the, the, the sense of repose and rest on Abraham, who was their forefather. And so they were able to go to where Abraham was prior to the resurrection of Christ, and they were able to be at a place of rest. So that's the first place that the Bible talks about. Now, the Bible also tells us that following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus went to these lower regions of the earth and he brought forth a train of captives. These were people that were in this area of Abraham's bosom and at that point they were resurrected because Jesus Christ was the firstborn from among the dead. No one had been to the third heaven that had died until Jesus Christ himself opened the gates for that opportunity and that experience. And so Jesus, being the firstborn among the dead from many brothers who were to follow, brought these men and women, these saints of the Old Testament, and he brought them from this place called Abraham's bosom and took them with him along with the thief on the cross and anyone who died from that moment on into the third heaven. And so when we die now today, uh, as Paul said so rightly, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we have this confidence of believers that we're not going to Abraham's bosom anymore because that is a vacant lot now. That, there's nobody there. Gehenna is still filled with unbelievers at this point. That's where unbelievers go to this, to, this, to this place eventually to be cast into the lake of fire. But right now it's Gehenna and it's a holding area for unbelievers who have died. But any believer that dies from the time that Christ uh, rose from the dead until his second coming will be ushered into the presence of God into this place called the third heaven, which gets me to my second point, the present heaven. And it's uh, called also the intermediate heaven. Uh, now again, when we think of heaven, this is the place we usually think of. We think of uh, clouds, <laughs> and we think of cherubim, and we think of harps, you know? And we think, uh, some of us are terrified, we're thinking worship for eternity, you know? It's like, I don't know if I can get into that. Some of us don't have great voices. And um, some of us really enjoy worship, but even those that enjoy worship, the idea of, of doing it without a break for eternity is, is really almost overwhelming. And quite honestly, if we were all very candid, not very attractive. There are parts of it that I just, I can't wait to worship, but, but the idea of worship for eternity and up and down and up and down, you know, with the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the hosts of heaven, it's like, okay, is it, you know, it's like calisthenics, you know, it's like, is that what it is in heaven? The truth is, is that because of this, a lot of people, even Christians, have this sense that, that heaven is boring and hell is exciting because in hell you're going to be slapping the back of your drinking buddies and they're going to be down there and fishing in the lake of fire and pulling up something, you know, and, and you're going to, you know, you're going to be telling dirty jokes that you like to tell and, and, and we're going to be sleeping with people that aren't our spouse. I mean, it's just going to be a wild time, you know, and unbelievers think of hell that way, but we're so wrong. Because hell will be the boring place. Hell will be absolute isolation. Nobody's going to be slapping anybody's backs. Nobody's going to be touching each other. People will not be communicating with each other in hell. 
Hell is going to be isolation for all eternity. It will be blackness. It will be emptiness. It will be a life without any sense of fulfillment whatsoever, with only darkness and suffering and torment, and you will be alone with no one to care, with no one to listen, with no one to love. That's what hell is. And you see how we've got these cartoons in the you know, newspaper or, or far side. I love the far side, by the way. But they got all these cartoons, you know, cracking jokes about hell and, you know, playing pranks on other demons and on the, the, new, the new guys that are coming in, you know. It won't be like that at all. And, the, and the, the most significant victim of hell in the greatest torment, talking to no one, suffering for eternity, will be Satan himself. Heaven is not the boring place. I can't hardly, I, I can hardly wait to... I'm, I want to get ahead of myself and tell you next week's sermon. I'm not going to, though. I've got to concentrate on the topic, which is the location. But this location of heaven that we think of, when we think of heaven, is this third heaven. And we don't know its exact location, but it's the place that God has described as the heaven of heavens. It's the third heaven that Paul spoke of. And um, I like to think of it this way. It's, it's really a place of a spiritual layover. It's a spiritual layover. It is not our final resting place. In the third heaven right now, the saints are not complete. They have not received their glorified, redeemed bodies. The Bible says that they are crying out to God for justice and they are asking him, when will these things be completed? And they are under the altar, the martyrs are under the altar, saying, when will justice come? This isn't the picture that we have of of heaven normally. It's a place of waiting It's a spiritual layover. It's glorious. It's incredible. We're in the presence of God, but it's not nearly what it's going to be. It's 10,000 times what this life is, but it's not even close to what our final resting place will be. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine that you live in East LA. Sorry if any of you do, Uh, but imagine that you live in East LA and and you're homeless and you've got nowhere to go, and, you, and you're, you're living just, it's just hand to mouth, and you're miserable, you, you, you're friendless, you're bereft of any comforts whatsoever. But you get a letter in the mail that's delivered to you, and, uh, and you receive it, and you open it up, and in the letter, it tells you that some long-lost uncle that you never even knew you had has died, and you're the only surviving relative and he is a multimillionaire and lives on a Nini beach on the cliffs in a multi-million dollar house with servants and everything you can imagine, it's all paid for, you have nothing to worry about, and they've sent you a ticket to come, and all you have to do is pack your bags and get on the plane. Are you following me so far? Sounds a little attractive. But you can't go directly to Anini Beach because you have to go to the airport and you've got to make a layover in Honolulu before you make your flight to Lahui, before you make your trip to Anini Beach. And so if you can think of, of the third heaven as the layover in Honolulu, it's a great place. It's better than being in a homeless shelter. They put you up in a really nice hotel. You've got a big room and it's gorgeous and they bring you the food that you want because this uncle just really wanted to take care of whoever was there, whoever would, would be the inheritor of, the, of his, of his uh, work and his efforts. And so you're, you're living plush, but you're thinking to yourself, wow, this is like 10,000 times better than living in a home, homeless shelter. But it's not even close to having your own home on Anini Beach and to having access to all those funds. But you have to make this layover in Honolulu. But the layover is temporary. And eventually, the next day or a few days later, you will make your trip from Honolulu to your inheritance 
on the cliffs of Anini Beach and you'll live there forever without a worry or a care ever again. And in essence, the layover in Honolulu is what the third heaven is like. We will be on a layover, temporary, beautiful, gorgeous, incredible. People save their whole lives to go to Waikiki and stay in a hotel. And in essence, we're gonna be staying in the presence of God 10,000 times better than what we've ever experienced on this earth, very much like a homeless shelter in some ways. We're far too comfortable, but compared to heaven, it's nothing. And yet, it's nothing to be compared with what's coming next. That is the present heaven, or the intermediate heaven. Now, there's another dimension of it that I wanna mention briefly, and it has to do with the millennial reign and kingdom of God. And that's recorded for us in the book of Revelation chapter 20. The millennial reign of God is going to take place after all of the judgments have been poured out on mankind. For the, the, the purpose of those judgments, by the way, is to turn man's heart back to God. But many in the world will refuse. And at the end of all these things, when everything is completed, God is going to come with the martyred saints who are in the third heaven, and he is going to rule and reign with them on this planet, unredeemed, with unredeemed people on the planet, and he's going to rule and reign in a theocracy, meaning God will be the king. And those martyred saints will rule and reign with him for a period of a thousand years. And what did I say where heaven is? It's wherever God is. That's the location of heaven. And so for a temporary period of time, those martyrs in heaven are gonna be translocated to planet Earth to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. At the end of that time, by the way, during that time, Satan will be bound, but at the end of that time, Satan, the Bible says in chapter 20 of Revelation, he will be released again and he will gather and deceive the nations to come to a place called Armageddon to fight against the Christ and his people. And I love how it's so, it, it's just, if you read the text, it's, it's so deflating to this great force that's gathered because he simply just says he sent fire and it was over. It, it wasn't a battle. It was just he gathered them and burned them. That's basically what happens in the battle of Armageddon. And so we find that after that time, uh, the, the dead in Christ and the dead will be resurrected. Everyone will, will be resurrected. And, uh, and I'm gonna talk about that more in a minute. But this millennial kingdom is a part of the kingdom of God. It's a part of the demonstration, again, of what the kingdom is going to be like. God reigning on earth, but during the millennial reign, it will be a reign over a world that is not yet redeemed. So we've covered really a variety of heavens, haven't we, so far? We've talked about the physical heavens, the, the envelope around the earth of our atmosphere. We've talked about the starry host. We've talked about the third heaven, God's location. And now we've talked about the past heaven, Abraham's bosom, where the saints of the Old Testament went until the resurrection of Christ. And now we've talked about this present heaven, the third heaven, where saints now today, in joining the saints of the Old Testament, now go to be with God in heaven. But it's a spiritual layover until we arrive at the future heaven or the eternal kingdom of God. I want you to turn to the book of Revelation 21 briefly, if you would. <coughs> In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, following the millennial reign of Christ, we have a description of what God does next. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And this is John the Apostle's description on the island of Patmos of this vision of God. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God 
prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So we will be with God in this, in, in a sense, this third heaven, not the third heaven in, in the kingdom, the heaven of heavens, but in this Abraham's bosom, the third heaven, and now this final state of glory, and it's going to be, to the surprise of many, on planet earth. It's going to be a recreated earth and a recreated heaven with resurrected people, with a resurrected existence that we will now occupy. It's also called and referred to in the New Testament as the eternal kingdom of God in 2 Peter 1.11. It's referred to as a place that Jesus is preparing for us that I read from, from John 14, verses two and three. It's the eternal inheritance of the saints in 1 Peter chapter 1.4 and Hebrews 9.15. It is the better country that we read this morning from Hebrews 11. It is that place whose architect and builder is God. It's a physical, tangible place. The question is, why do so many people object to the idea that heaven is a, is a location? Why do we have a difficult time imagining heaven being anything like what we see on planet Earth? Why is it that we can only think of clouds and gates and Peter? Why, why is that? Well, I want to suggest to you several reasons. I talked about this last week. I won't cover this again, but the misconceptions that we have are a part of it. And that comes from history. It comes from literature. It comes from false religions. And it comes from the liberal media that has portrayed heaven as not really a place, but just guys kind of floating around on clouds and misty, you know, misty experience up there and kind of seeing people walk around, and, but, but, but not really in bodies. They're almost disembodied spirits that we think of when we think of heaven. How did that all start? Well, a lot of it started with the, with the great philosopher Plato, and I say great from the world standpoint, certainly not from a Christian standpoint because he was not a believer in Jesus Christ. But he lived from 427 to 347 BC. And in essence, what he taught was this, is that anything physical, tangible, material, uh, anything you could touch, taste, smell, look at was evil. And, and he had good reason for coming to that conclusion because as he looks around him and he looks at people, he says, these people aren't pure and faultless. This isn't holy. This is evil. And he saw killings and murders and everything that we see. And he looked around the world and he saw the fallen creation and the tornadoes and the, the earthquakes and the flooding and the famines and the droughts. And he said, this isn't good. And so, so he came to the conclusion that all physical matter was evil. And everything that was good was immaterial. In other words, it wasn't tangible. It wasn't physical. You couldn't see it and touch it or smell it or taste it. And therefore, he began to develop this view of the afterlife as this immaterial world that you couldn't see. Now, it would have been enough that, that Philo did this, but, the, but another group, a cultic group in the first and second and third century church after the resurrection of Christ began to teach his doctrine, his philosophy within the church, and they were called Gnostics. The word Gnostic comes from the root word gnosis in Greek, which means knowledge. And they believed that they had a higher knowledge, a more supernatural knowledge than what even the disciples and what Jesus had. And they were elevated to this place of, of, of enormous wisdom in their own minds about what heaven was like in particular and what God was like and the spiritual world. They believed in many ways the same thing that Philo taught so many hundreds of years earlier, that the physical world is evil and that the spiritual world is, is, um, is good. The physical world, 
because of that is, cannot be material, uh, the, or at least the, the heavenly world, anything spiritual can't be physical or material. The result of their belief was this, and, and this really is the crux of the matter. They denied the incarnation of Christ, that Christ became a man, that he was God-man. They denied that, why? Because that would mean that if God came and sent his son and Jesus took on human flesh, that Jesus became evil because anything material and physical is evil. They also believed that because there was a, a distinction between the physical and the spiritual called dualism, dual, a dual life, is that they would say, what I do with my body has no bearing on my spiritual life. So I can sin, I can sleep around, I can commit all kinds of evil, and it has absolutely no effect on my spiritual man. I can be tight with God and absolutely walking with the Lord in a, in a wonderful way and have complete peace that I'm honoring and pleasing him even though I'm living a completely godless life because my physical life and my spiritual life are completely separate entities and therefore I'm not responsible. Now, I know some people would be like, yeah, I like that doctrine, that's the one I want, I choose that one. I hope no one here. But, uh, but a lot of people in the early Testament church were, were drawn to it because it's difficult to live a godly life. And, uh, and so Plato and Gnosticism had this tremendous influence on the early church's view of heaven. And they began to think differently about heaven. And that's why today, uh, for many reasons, we have a very vague understanding of heaven. We think the Bible says almost nothing about it. And so we're content to say, gee, I don't know very much about heaven, but I guess we'll all be happy when we get there. You know, so I'm just trudging away down here. But I talked with some friends last night that were at the service last night and they said, you know what? Until you started speaking on this issue of heaven, I really wasn't looking forward to it. One person even said, I was, I'm frightened to go to heaven because I like life here. And do, do you understand that we have such a, a, a dwarfed and stunted view of what heaven is like because this isn't Paul's heart at all. This isn't what Jesus said, hey, take comfort because the kingdom is coming. And we're saying, well, you know what, thanks, Jesus, but you know, I like the kingdom here. And I'll get there when I get there. I'm not in a rush, okay? But that's completely different than the heart of the New Testament church, which in my estimation indicates that we have a faulty view of heaven. So what is heaven? Where is it? And what will it be like? Today, I want to talk about what it'll be like. I want to give you evidence for a renewed, redeemed earth. The Bible clearly says that heaven will be on earth. That's, that, that's just plain as day in the scriptures. And, uh, and I talked about that last week and I've already mentioned a number of scriptures, not the least of which is Revelation 21. He's gonna create a new heaven and a new, new earth and, and God is a city that he's prepared for us and it's 1,400 miles cubed. And we'll talk about that next week, the, the environment of heaven. And it's gonna come down as a bride and it's gonna be placed in Jerusalem. And that will be the, the city center for the entire globe and that will be our new home. But the Bible says that, um, that it's, it's, it's a renewed heaven. And this is, a, this is a, a, an issue that a lot of Christians have trouble with and, and disagree on. And I, to be honest with you, until I really dug in and studied this, I wasn't even sure myself of the answer. Now I feel completely confident in the, in the Bible's answer. Is this place a recreated earth or is it a brand new earth? Does God scrap the old earth and old heavens and throw it away and start over? Or does God redeem what was once made? Part of the reason why people think that it may be scrapped is that at first glance, some of the scriptures seem to indicate that it's utterly destroyed. Psalm 102, 25 says that the heavens and the earth will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change, they will be changed and they will be discarded. In Luke 21, uh, the heaven and the earth will pass away, Jesus says, but my words will never pass away. Second Peter 
uh, chapter three, verse 10, says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will disappear with the roar and the elements will be destroyed with fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And when you pull all these words together like perish and wear out and change and discarded and pass away and disappear and destroy and laid bare, it sounds pretty devastating, doesn't it? It's like, what's left? What can be left after that? But I'm gonna share with you from scripture and I'm gonna support it every step of the way that this heaven and this earth that we have here will not completely go away. It will be restored, it will be redeemed and what is so corrupt right now and so evil that at one time God had to flood the earth to take care of the sin, in the future God is gonna send fire to take care of the sin and purify this place but what we are standing on, what we are sitting on, a part of it is this new earth and this new reign and this new kingdom, it's tangible, it's material, you can touch it, you can feel it, you can taste it, but what we have now on earth is not even close to what's coming. It's 10,000 times, 10,000 times better than what we have now. But it's tangible, it's physical, we can, we can get a, a foreshadowing. It's a, it's, a, it's a corrupt version of what will be. It's like looking into a mirror dimly, and yet I propose to you that what we are living on planet Earth is going to be restored and redeemed. Let me give you evidence for, for that from Scripture. The first is the bookend plan of God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he said it was good. In Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The opening verses of scripture to the very last chapters of scripture, God says what his plan is. It's a new heaven and a new earth, and it's all good. And everything in between in the Bible is just the, just the demonstration of the failure of man and the redemptive work of God in preparing his people for that eventuality of being restored to his original creation plan. The second thing I'll, I'll suggest to you that points to um, this issue of heaven on earth is the biblical principle of continuity. It means uninterrupted succession or flow of a theme or an idea or a plan in the case of God. And we find in Genesis 1-1 that God had this plan for creation. In Isaiah 65-17, it says uh, through the prophet, behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. In, uh, in 2 Peter chapter uh, 3, verse 13, but in keeping with this promise, we were looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And then, of course, Revelation 21. Behold, I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth. This theme runs throughout the entire Bible, through the prophets, through the writings, through the, uh, through the, the scriptures. We've got it in the, in the writings of the apostles. We've got it everywhere. New heaven, new earth. In the beginning, it was his plan. In the middle, it was his plan. And in the end, it's his plan. Heaven and earth, we are going to be occupying a physical, tangible place called the new heaven and the new earth. There's another reason that I believe that, um, that heaven is going to be this physical planet, and it's the biblical pattern of redemption. And I've already mentioned this issue of Noah, but I want to read a short passage to you from 2 Peter chapter 3. It says, referring to the people of the times of Noah's day, the flood, but they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the word of God, the same word that destroyed the earth by the flood, by that same word of God, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So we have some ideas here about what this is going to include. God is going to destroy the ungodly during this time of fire. 
but the earth will not be completely destroyed. I don't have time to talk to you about all the things I'd like to. One is the promised land. Have you ever wondered why God made such a big deal about the promised land? Well, what, what's God's, what, it's, we're all going to heaven anyway, so why does God, it's kind of like, you know, knowing you've got a, a, a cabin up at Coquay and you're about to be kicked out at the end of the year as these lease things go off, and you, and you know, nobody's going to go up there and build a mansion up there right now. Nobody's going to invest a million bucks and go build a place for the, for the county to take it away and auction it off to who knows who. So right now, nobody's doing nothing up there. Nobody wants to put any money into anything up there because nobody knows what the outcome will be. If God knew that that the kingdom was going to be in this third heaven, floating around on harps and watching cherubim you know, go by, then he wouldn't have invested so much time and energy in the promised land, in building a consensus and a desire and a hunger in the people of God for this place called their inheritance. And God says over and over his great love for Jerusalem, his great love for Israel, the place, the land, the location. Why? Because I believe that we are going to make a return there in the kingdom to come. The Bible also has all-inclusive language that we don't often think of. Quite frankly, when we think of the redemption of God, we think of just us, don't we? We think we're going to be redeemed. We're going to have new bodies. But the redemption, in our mind, that's it. That's the, that's the exit sign, you know? Okay, I'm in line, I'm out of line. Got the new body, thank you. I'm, I'm there. Listen to what the scripture says about the all-inclusive nature of God's redemptive work. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, I tell you, at the renewal of all things... When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. At the renewal of all things. I think that word means what it says. All things. Acts 3.21, Peter speaking. He says, he must remain, referring to heaven, uh, referring to Jesus in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. The prophets of the Old Testament understood that there was a kingdom, there was a reign, there was a rule. Why do you think the disciples thought that Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom? Because the Old Testament is full of prophecy about it. They just got their timing wrong. They didn't understand. But they had it right. They were just a few millennia you know, ahead of their time in terms of their expectation. And so... The restoration of everything. Colossians 1.19, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Ephesians 1, uh, 9 and 10, and I'm just going to cut to the chase here, that God's intent through Christ is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. The redemption of our bodies is just a small part. It's, a, it's an enormously important part. It's a vital part. It's the pivotal point of all of creation's redemption. But it is not the only redemptive work that God is going to do. He is going to redeem this planet. He is not going to give Satan an inch, not a millimeter of success or victory. God is going to restore all of it to his glory. I want to talk about the, the Bible's choice of, of verbiage and adjectives in the scripture. The Bible says that God is going to create a new earth and a, and a new heaven. The Old Testament, there are two words in the Hebrew for new. Uh, Berea, you'll see there, it means to create new, something unique, something never seen before. Interestingly, that's not the word that, that God used in Isaiah chapter 65 when he described the new heaven and the new earth. That word is kadash. And that word in Hebrew means to rebuild or to renew or to repair. 
So God isn't gonna create something new that's never been seen before and do away with this, and, and in that sense, do away with any sense of what we, I, I think the problem is, is that when we think that it's gonna be destroyed, we, we don't have a clue what the new heaven is gonna be like, because we think, well, he's gonna be completely different, right? But if it's this existing one and God is gonna renovate it, then we're like, wow, we have an idea of what it's gonna be like. We have some inkling, it's a shadow, it's as in a mirror dimly, but we have some idea of what heaven will be like. What about the New Testament? What words do they use there? Well, there are two words, there are three words actually, but two primary words in the Greek for new. Neos means something that is new chronologically. So if you're a newborn child or if you have a new ministry or a new business, you use the word neos. But that's not the word that is used in the various locations in scripture when it talks about a new heaven and a new earth. It means, uh, the word is kainos in Greek and it means a new freshness a restoration, a revitalizing. Interestingly, it's the same word that, that the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he said these wonderful words. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Not neos, not unique, not unrecognizable to other people around him or her, but revitalized, refreshed, invigorated with the Spirit of God. They look the same. We still live in the same places. And after we got saved, before we got saved, and we still drove cars, and we still had to eat, and we still had lives and friends and family and responsibilities and jobs and hobbies and things like that. So we were completely new in the sense that, gee, I don't even recognize who he is. Who is I? Who are you? You're Frank? Frank, I would never even know it was you. You're a different color, and your hair is different. No. We look at believers that come to Christ and we say, wow, you're brand new, but we don't go, who are you? We know exactly who they are. And in the same way with the New Testament's verbiage about this new creation is that when we think about the new earth, we don't have to go, oh my gosh, we have no idea what it looks like. No, we have to say, wow, it's just like, it's, I recognize it. I recognize the places. I believe we're gonna be able to visit some of the same places that we're here on earth, that we'll be able to enjoy them with a, with a brand new view and a brand new perspective and without sin and without sorrow and all these things. But we're not gonna come to planet earth when God brings down his kingdom and say, well, can you show me around the place? I mean, we're gonna, we're gonna know a lot of the earth already just from traveling and from, you know, watching National Geographic, I guess, for, you know, if you haven't been to places, a lot of places on the earth I haven't been to, but we'll know what it looks like. Here, listen to the second part of 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new, kainos, a new creation. The form, it goes on to say, the old has gone. It's passed away. The very same language that's used about the passing away of the earth. And the new has come, kainos again. It's a new life. It's a refreshed, revitalized life. This is the language that God uses when it relates to the new kingdom and the new earth. I want to talk briefly about something I just mentioned a moment ago was God's refusal to give Satan an inch. I love the passage in Colossians 2.15 that it says that, that Jesus Christ, after he had suffered and died on the cross, it said that having disarmed the powers and authorities, and he's talking about demonic forces and Satan himself, it says that he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Isn't that wonderful? I can't, I can't imagine Christ's triumph being, being partial. And like, you know, well, we lost a few and you lost a few. We, we, we did better than you did. At least we win in the end, but yeah, you know... You, you lost 100, we lost 20. That's, that's not how God is going to redeem things. I don't believe that God will give Satan an inch. 
I think he's going to redeem back everything Satan meant to destroy. Why do you think this planet is in such turmoil? Why do you think that, you know, our, our ecology and why our environment and why all these things are going, it's the Bible says the earth is groaning, which we'll talk about in a moment. But I believe it's the work of the enemy to destroy the final resting place of the saints of God because Satan fully understands what the final destination of the believers are and God's kingdom. And he wants to spoil it. He would love to ruin this place. But God won't have anything of that nature at all. And as, as much as, uh, you know, I, I know Al Gore has a real heart to save the environment, the only one that's really going to end up saving it is Jesus Christ. Man can't do that, but God can. The last reason that I'll mention that, um, that I believe that this is the planet Earth that we're talking about when we talk about this renewed and restored and recreated heaven has to do with the Lamb's claim to the Earth's title deed found for us in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. In that text, and I'm going to read it for you briefly, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. He's talking about God the Father. With writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Most Bible scholars believe that this scroll is the title deed to the earth. When no one stepped forward, as the text goes on, and I'm paraphrasing, when no one stepped forward, John the Apostle starts to weep. And I'm thinking, well, that's a little bit of a heavy reaction just because somebody can't take these seals off. Well, it's not a heavy reaction if you're John the Apostle and your entire life has been focused on one future event, and that is the culmination of all things on planet Earth, redeemed and restored. But if there's no one to take this title deed and no one's worthy, there is no proper inheritor of that title deed, then that deed goes unclaimed. And the redemption and the restoration and the recreation of heaven and earth could never take place. But at that moment, the Lamb of God steps forward. I don't know how a lamb picks up a scroll, but he picked up the scroll with his little paw or whatever it was. But somehow this lamb that's described as the Lamb of God, the one slain from the foundation of the earth, came forward and took the scroll and was worthy to open the, the seals of that scroll. And the whole of heaven rejoiced. You remember the songs they sang? It's like, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb to open the scroll because that was the title deed. He alone had the authority to be the inheritor of that, and in his inheritance, we participate in the final inheritance of Christ that he makes us partners in, and we will share with him for eternity on this new created and restored and redeemed planet. I want to close by reading the final verses that we started out with in Hebrews 11. It says all of these saints, all these men and women of the past were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. I want to ask you, are you longing for that country? Is it something that you really want? And that the truth is, is that I have to confess myself because of the fact that I had a very rudimentary understanding of heaven. I wasn't even sure what to expect. And I was looking forward to it on some days more than others, as you probably do. It's like, get me out of here. You know, I just want to go now, you know. But I'm talking about just in general as a, as a part of life. I was in no rush to, to leave. 
I want to see my grandkids. I want, to, I want to watch my kids grow up. I want all those things. Those aren't bad desires. But it made me realize, what kind of a man should I be? What should I be aiming at? What should I be looking for? And Christians, brothers and sisters in the Lord, the sons and daughters of the Most High God, those of you, all of you who believe are going to be ruling and reigning and kings and queens and princesses and princesses with God on his, on his recreated, redeemed earth, you mighty men and women of God, Lift up your eyes, and that's Paul's recommendation in Colossians chapter 3. Because of all of these things, we can endure anything. Because of these promises and this place that's coming. You know, we're worried about trying to collect property and things and material goods and everything, and God says, hey, if you wait just a little bit, I'm going to give you the whole place. Are you following me? If we're going to get the whole place and we don't have to worry about owning any of it now. We don't have to beat ourselves against the wall to try to get more and more and more and more. Those things can distract us from the true riches and the things that God has for us. That's why the Bible says, invest wisely. Don't be foolish. Let your treasure be in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. Invest wisely because the kingdom is coming. So we have a a past heaven, Abraham's bosom. We have a present heaven, that third dimension, that area of intermediacy, that time of waiting for the culmination of all things. But the final heaven is yet to come and it's gonna be glorious. It's gonna be so incredible, words can't describe it. John the apostle was flummoxed and so was Paul. He saw things that he could not utter. He was not permitted to speak. They were so glorious. And they're awaiting those who walk by faith. We are almost home. We are almost home. We are almost home. Because of these things in 2 Peter, Peter says, therefore, purify yourself. The earth is going to be purified whether they like it or not. But believers now are called because of the truths of this life that's ahead of us. Purify yourself. Give yourself to God like you've never given yourself to him. Give yourself to his will and his purposes. Give yourself to obedience. Give yourself to worship. Give yourself to prayer. Give yourself to the proclamation and sharing of this good news with people that, that don't even have a desire for heaven, but you can begin to explain and teach them what it's really like. Give yourself to the things of the kingdom. You will not be disappointed and there's a rich reward coming for you and I, I'm so looking forward to next week to talk to you about what the environment itself will be like because we have a great deal of information about it. But between now and then, I'm crying out to you. I'm, I'm, I'm begging you as we watch the Middle East unravel and we watch Israel uh, bombing Syria or bombing Lebanon and Beirut. And, and as we watch Iran getting involved and sending over missiles to the Hezbollah to, to attack Israel. As we watch now Syria is getting involved. And I believe the UN not long from now will be involved. And I think it, it very well could, uh, could be close to the very end here. It very well could be. It may not be, but it very well could be. And I ask you, are you ready for your final destination? Are you prepared? Have you invested wisely? It's not too late to make your life count for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for uh, your clarity and the inspiration that your word is. To